Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. Today, we're talking to Michael Pollan. You may know him from his food writing, books like The Omnivore's Dilemma, The Botany of Desire, or Cooked, which is also now a Netflix show. His latest focus, however, is something quite different, something consumable. It's psychedelic drugs. His new book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics, explores the history of drugs like LSD and magic mushrooms, and the groundbreaking medical experiments that were performed in the 1950s, and how that progress was almost killed by political pressures in the 1970s, before the recent return to these drugs to treat things like depression, addiction, and PTSD, and the remarkable results we're starting to see today. As a consummate professional and hands-on journalist, Michael went out and tried a number of psychedelics himself to document the experience firsthand, resulting in a truly astonishing book, when he came into the studio, we started with the basics. Drugs are such a complicated topic. And aside from all the political and economic elements of uh, the drugs trade in, around the world, so maybe let's just start with clarifying what, what are psychedelics? Because we're not talking about heroin or cocaine. Or- no, I think it's very important. It's a very special class of drugs that uh, the, the so-called classic psychedelics consist of LSD, psilocybin, which is the chemical in magic mushrooms, and DMT, which is in par- which you can get as a synthetic chemical or part of ayahuasca. And they're all tryptamines, uh, which is a, a kind of molecule that is very familiar to our nervous system because it's a, serotonin is a tryptamine. Mm-hmm. And they affect the serotonin receptors and lock, you know, they're keys for that lock and activate those receptors. And that appears to be how they work, although that really doesn't answer very much. But it starts a cascade of events that results in the experience people have. As drugs, it it is important to separate them, too, because they're remarkably less toxic Mm -hmm. than drugs that we take routinely, than drugs you have in your medicine cabinet that you bought over the counter without a prescription. Uh, There doesn't appear to be any lethal dose, which is remarkable. Even, you know, Tylenol has a lethal dose. They're also non-addictive. If you set up the you know the rat in the cage with the lever that administers drugs to its uh, bloodstream, uh, if it's cocaine, it'll it'll press that lever until it dies. If it's LSD, it'll press it once and then never again. Mm-hmm. So they're non-addictive, but they do carry risks without question, psychological risks. People have very powerful experiences. Um, it leaves them in a, can leave them in a debilitated condition, and if they're in the wrong setting, such as walking around a city. They, they could do reckless things, and there have been occasional suicides on LSD. But there are a lot of scare stories, I think, that are have been exaggerated, especially in the 60s. It's not true that people stare at the sun till they go blind. Yeah, that, that's not such an true. amazing, amazing yeah. story. Uh, th- there's a part of that story, though, that's really interesting in that it was a story that was spread that it was like six students, was it? They were staring at the sun and died, and they were on LSD. And they all sort of died at the same time. They didn't die, supposedly. They went blind. They went blind, that's yeah. right. And then 
because that story was out there, regardless of whether it was true or not, yeah, someone started, started doing it while they were on LSD. <laughs> well, this is a problem. The drugs are so suggestible in their mm. effects that if you've been told to do something or that something happens on LSD, you might do it. So that story begins with a, a, a complete fiction. It was traced recently to a commissioner of the blind in the state of Washington who was very worried about people taking LSD, and he thought this story might discourage them. And so he put it out. It was completely made up out of whole cloth. And it was discovered, and he was fired. Um, but nevertheless, this meme is in the culture that people want to stare at the sun, and, and people can't resist the temptation, some of them. But, you know, we have to realize that in the 60s, these drugs got branded as, you know, agents that made you insane. And that idea is still out there. And while you can no doubt find examples of casualties, people who were tripped into their schizophrenia because of a drug experience, you know, would it have happened otherwise anyway? Yeah, probably. But it, it gets blamed on LSD. And we forget, too, that there, you know, the SSRI antidepressants that are so ubiquitous, people commit suicide on those, and that's a risk of taking them. Uh, but that never becomes a story because that's not a narrative. That's, a, that's a, a rare side effect in a drug that helps many people, supposedly, whereas LSD, it plugs into this narrative of you know, the, how crazy-making these drugs are. So uh, we need to you know, take a very rational look at what really are the risks and what are the benefits. Because psychedelics are, in particular, they're really associated with youth and youth culture yeah. and the counterculture. And I mean, I mean, you're a bit too late, really, to be part of the whole Summer of Love Yes, thing. I missed that. You're I about was 12, 12 during you? the Summer of Love, yeah. <laughs> it would have been a bit inappropriate for you to be I, taking I, part. I don't know that I would have been there, but anyway, <laughs> even if I were older. But it's such a funny thing because it, it is associated with, with the youth and this sort of rebellion against authority. It was, at least in the 60s. Yeah. It needn't have been, but it happened to be that that was the segment of culture that got most interested in psychedelics. In the 50s, though, there were older people doing it. There was a whole collection of people in Los Angeles, including many movie stars and directors and uh, composers, who were getting LSD therapy from their like, psychiatrists. Uh, Cary Grant. He, Cary Grant one. famously had 60 LSD trips, and he pronounced himself a reborn man afterwards <laughs> and, and gave an interview that actually introduced a lot of people to the whole idea of LSD who had never heard of it. So the 60s is an important chapter in the history of psychedelics, but it's not that important, and mm. it gets overplayed. And one of my goals in this book is to show people that there was a very rich history before the 60s, this period of research in the 50s where very interesting work was being done, very serious work at universities and other institutions. And then you have the 60s, and then the research stops as a result of the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have an ancient history, too, of course, that not LSD, which was not invented till the 30s or 40s, but other psychedelics have been used by traditional cultures uh, and the ancient Greeks for thousands of years. So I, one of the things I'm trying to do is put the 60s in a, in a context so you see it as one chapter in a much longer and much more interesting story. Mm. Well, let's, let's start with that history in the 50s, particularly with LSD, because it was the product of a, a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, really. an accidental discovery, <laughs> like so many great discoveries. Um, so it was discovered by a chemist at Sandoz Laboratories, which is now Novartis, in Switzerland, and he was looking for a drug to help women in childbirth, and I think to staunch bleeding, I'm not exactly sure. And he was working with ergot, the fungus. It's a fungus that infects grain. It's very interesting that fungi seem to produce these very interesting chemicals. Mm -hmm. 
And he was making a series of, uh, of modifications of the base molecule in, in something called ergotamine, this chemical that's produced by the fungus. And the 25th such synthesis, LSD-25, he tested on animals to see if it would have the desired effect, and it didn't. And this is in 1938. He puts this on the shelf and keeps going with his additional syntheses. But in 1943, in the middle of the war, he has what he calls a presentiment that he needs to take another look at this molecule, that there's something quite beautiful about its structure. And he, so he decides to resynthesize it. It's a very weird thing to do. Usually, you discard a drug, you discard a drug. And he accidentally ingests a small amount of it. Um, it is so potent. It's probably the most potent psychoactive substance we know of, measured in micrograms, not milligrams like most drugs. Microgram is a millionth of a gram. So it's a very small number of molecules that it has an effect. So he gets a little bit on his finger, and uh, it gets into his bloodstream, and he suddenly realizes he's seeing things and having these very strange uh, mental manifestations. And he realizes he's got something here, a very powerful psychoactive drug. So he takes a full dose, which he thought was very conservative, 250 micrograms. It's not so conservative as it turns out. It's quite <laughs> a lot. And has the first uh, LSD trip. Um, he's in his office, and he realizes, I've really got to get home. And he gets his lab assistant to uh, escort him home. And it's the war, so there's gas, gasoline rationing, so he has to bicycle home. And he takes this <laughs> legendary bike ride. Uh, which is still celebrated by psychonauts. It's on <laughs> April 19th. It's called Bicycle Day. And uh, gets home, has his assistant call the doctor. The doctor comes in because he's kind of freaking out because the furniture is alive and, um, and very menacing, <laughs> and he really doesn't understand what's happening. Doctor looks him over, checks his vitals, says, you're fine, n n nothing wrong physically, except your pupils are kind of dilated. And he goes on to see himself separating from his body and looking at himself from the ceiling. And it's actually, some of it is quite terrifying. He was convinced he was going mad. But then he kind of passed over into this other state, especially as, the, as he started to come down. And he, and, it was, and he went out in his garden and he said it glistened like the first day of creation. He felt like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And, he, and he has, in his book, he, he wrote a memoir called LSD, My Problem Child. And in, in this book, he described the afterglow and what a wonderful experience it was. So here he has discovered this, this drug, but, but what is it good for? And he doesn't have any idea. So Sandoz does something really interesting and, and ahead of its time in a way. They crowdsource a research program by essentially offering LSD-25 to any laboratory, any researcher, any therapist who is willing to simply report back on what they learned, and they give it to them for free. And so LSD kind of washes over the research community in America and in Europe, and it didn't take much to get it. I mean, if you had a nice piece of stationery, you could get some LSD-25 from, uh, from <laughs> Sandoz. But it begins this very interesting period of research I was describing in the, in the uh, 50s, where people go through a process of learning what this might be good for. Mm. And they, they go through a series of paradigms uh, reflected in the names of the drug. And at first they call it a psychotomimetic, which means it's a drug that mimics psychosis. Because that's how it looks. You know, if, if, you, if someone describes what's happening and they talk about their personality dissolving and they're hearing voices and seeing things, it sounds like psychosis. It's yeah. a classic definition. But the researchers are taking the drug themselves, which was actually considered the most ethical thing to do in those days. It's, it's, it's you know, verboten now, but at the time it was very common. And 
they're taking it and they're saying, no, this doesn't feel like psychosis. This feels too good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, and they realized that that's a bad model because that model would have treated it as a drug that you give to therapists so they could understand what their patients are going through. Mm. And they reject that paradigm. And then two other paradigms evolve. And the Cary Grant paradigm is the uh, is psycholytic. The drug is a psycholytic, which means that it's a mind-loosening agent. And at fairly low doses, um, psychiatrists begin giving it to their patients before they meet. And the idea being that their defenses will be somewhat lower. They'll still be able to talk and remember the session. It was like 65 micrograms or 50 micrograms. It's not a microdose. It's not a macrodose somewhere in the middle, and people can get in touch with their subconscious, and repressed material will, will float to the surface. And that became a, a very common form of psychotherapy, especially in Los Angeles for some reason. And, and the shrinks were charging quite a bit of money for it, like $500 a session, which that's like thousands And it was now. a lot because they were getting the LSD for free, weren't yes, they? Yes, <laughs> I know. It was a complete scam. Um, and then you had this other paradigm that was developed by an English psychiatrist uh, named Humphrey Osmond, who's a very interesting character. He, he, his hospital in London won't let him do any more psychedelic research. And the word doesn't exist yet, by the way. He's about to coin it. And he moves to Saskatchewan, where they're setting up this very progressive public health system that then became the model of national health in Canada. And they're trying to recruit brilliant doctors and psychiatrists and things. And so he goes over there where he can do the research. And he starts developing a new paradigm that he names, and he comes up with this in a correspondence with Aldous Huxley, the uh, psychedelic paradigm. Psychedelic simply means mind manifesting. And the idea being that this amplifies mental processes in a dramatic way and does bring things to the surface, but much more dramatically than psycholytic. And he begins what now is the conventional protocol to administer the drugs in a therapeutic setting which is very different than the image people have of taking a psychedelic, you know, taking a handful of mushrooms and going to a concert. It's mm -hmm. nothing like that. You're guided. You're in the presence of at least one and, and usually two therapists, a man and a woman, and they prepare you very carefully for the experience, what to expect, what to do if you get into trouble, the importance of surrendering to whatever happens, no matter how disturbing it might be, because if you resist it is when you have a bad trip. It's when you start panicking. Yes, and you have a panic reaction, you get paranoid, but if you just tell yourself you're going to surrender, uh, relax and let your mind float downstream, as John Lennon wrote, you'll be much better off. Mm -hmm. and, and whatever scary thing is happening will morph into something much happier. And they sit with you the whole time. You're wearing eye shades. That's another key difference. They're blocking out uh, most of your sensory inputs. And some of them play music <clears throat> as well. Is that right? They all play music. Yeah. Usually on headphones, but sometimes not. And the music is designed to first block out any environmental signals, traffic noise or whatever, but also to help kind of support the experience. You know, there's a kind of a ride, you know, it starts very mellow and then it gets more dramatic and there's kind of a climactic period and then a denouement. And the music can be sometimes, it, it seldom has words. It's often classical, but, but lately they've been using very neutral kind of Brian Eno, hmm. uh, Philip Glass kind of music that you can make of whatever you will um, <laughs> instead of trying to prime a spiritual experience, which some, some soundtracks do, I think, in my, you know, in my experience. And, uh, and then so they're with you. They don't say much. They say hardly anything. They'll just say, how are you? Where are you? Hmm. But you know they're there, and that's very comforting. And then after the experience, they help you integrate it. 
and this is in a way the most important part, is making sense of it. So many people have had powerful drug experiences and they never had an opportunity to talk about them with a therapist or just a, a, a wise person and figure out what do they mean and how do you apply this to my life? It's just a drug experience. And the integration session is where you take a drug experience and make it a life experience and figure out if you had any insights or epiphanies, how you might apply it to the conduct of your life. Mm. So that's the guided experience. And this, this protocol is really devised in the mid-50s in the lab of uh, Humphrey Osmond with the help of a very mysterious American named Al Hubbard, who is not a doctor, who's a spy, a double agent, an inventor, a boat captain, a pilot, a, just a very complicated, weird guy. Who you wears, used the word character before, and he was immediately the first person that jumped to my mind when he used the word character, character. in vertical. He's, he's a fantastic character. He's so much more interesting than Timothy Leary, who is usually the yeah, big... Yeah, so Timothy Leary's always the guy that gets mentioned when it comes to yes. psychedelics. And, and one of my satisfactions in doing this research was learning that there are other characters in this crazy world that are much more interesting than Leary. And Al Hubbard is certainly one of them. He was very hard to research because he didn't seek publicity the way Leary did. So there's very little record of him. I really want to see, like, whoever, someone in Hollywood's going to read this yeah, book and it's going to be a race between a Leary biopic or a Hubbard <laughs> biopic. And I want to watch both yes. of them. Of course, you could combine them because they knew each other. <laughs> Hubbard true. hated Leary and threatened to shoot him once. Because <laughs> Leary, but they had two very different philosophies of how to use LSD to change the course of civilization. They both have this grandiose dream. And Leary's idea, when he gets bored with science and decides he's, oh my God, psychedelics can solve all the world's problems if everybody uses them, and he, he becomes this kind of evangelist, but he's a populist. He wants everybody to take them. You know, everyone should turn on, tune in, drop out. And Hubbard has a very different idea. He's conservative. He's kind of a, he's a Catholic mystic too. And he believes you've got to turn on the elite and let the consciousness filter down. He wanted to give it to Nixon, was that right? Yes. Well, (laughs) all of them wanted to give it to Nixon. And and you can imagine what they'd be saying about Trump now. And they, um, uh, so so what Hubbard does, he's got a satchel full of LSD that he got from Sandoz. You know, in one account, a liter bottle, which is just an inconceivable (laughs) amount of LSD. It's enough to turn on like a third of the population of the whole world at that point. And he goes around giving it to leaders in business, computer engineers, the first generation computer engineers, people in the church, the Catholic church hierarchy, some of them quite high up, politicians. We don't know everybody he turned on, but apparently it was like 6,000 people. But his idea was if you turn on the right people, you could change the society. So they were pursuing these very different tracks. And Hubbard felt that Leary's approach was going to incite a backlash, which indeed it did. Mm. And that's why he, he thought about shooting him. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Make space this weekend. Space for films about Chilean romance, plays about millennial angst, and poetry that makes you want to write poetry. Those new jackfruit superfood samosas, or not. 
a writer that's never been written about, the manager you might love, and opinions you might not. It's your weekend. Make space to be inspired. Pick up The Guardian and The Observer this weekend. You were talking about the 60s and this whole association with psychedelics and the youth. Yeah, youth. counterculture. And Leary is kind of, in a way, responsible for that backlash because he frightened a lot of people with that whole... He ed- did. I mean, he said things, he said very provocative things like, mm. you know, kids who take LSD aren't going to fight your wars or join your corporations. And it was true. And people did drop out, you know, mm. after they used LSD. So it wasn't an empty threat. But it's important to understand that it probably would have gotten into the counterculture had Leary never lived. Mm. You have to remember on the West Coast, you have Ken Kesey, the writer, who beca- who's almost a cult figure there. And he has his whole group of merry pranksters, he called them. And they're like driving around the country in their bus further or farther. I forget which one it was called. And, you know, giving LSD to people. And they, and they organize the acid tests where, you know, thousands of people are given LSD. The interesting thing about Kesey is he had his first LSD trip on the government dime. Um, He was turned on by the CIA because they were conducting their own research through the the 50s and 60s. And you could, as a volunteer, they would pay you $50 to come in and try their weird new drug. And and he tried it, and that's what got him started. So arguably the whole 60s counterculture is a CIA mind control experiment gone horribly or wonderfully wrong, depending on your perspective. (laughs) I mean, that's one thing that is associated with the fear around psychedelics is the CIA program, so the MKUltra. And they were specifically using... They were trying to weaponize it. Yeah, it was quite a malicious plan that they had. They were trying to use it for um, mind control and suggestibility. They had a couple ideas. One was to brainwash people, get them to do things against their interest. We don't know if they succeeded in that or not. It's actually plausible that they did. They also thought maybe you could use it as a bioweapon and disable whole populations by spraying them with LSD. I, I don't think that worked. And then they thought it would be an, a very good interrogation drug and get people to tell the truth. Well, people will tell, but it's not the truth. <laughs> it'll be something. <laughs> so it'll be something. And they, got, and they realized the information was really bad. And then the fourth plan they had, they were, they were trying everything, was to somehow expose world leaders enemies like Castro to it and it would get them to do crazy things that would discredit them. <laughs> Be slightly embarrassing in a Yeah, <laughs> now who knows, maybe that did happen, we don't know. And the problem with the, the MKUltra is that only some information about what happened was ever released. The CIA destroyed a huge number of documents related to MKUltra. But yes, that did sour the public on LSD as did the counterculture associations and so there is a moral backlash, a moral panic around LSD beginning around 1965. And this has a, you know, a very unfortunate effect because it chills the research and gradually the research dies. It it runs out of funding. And even the researchers themselves became a little embarrassed to be studying LSD. And um, so they didn't fight to keep doing it, even though they were getting really good results. So we have this unprecedented situation in modern science where a promising avenue of research is shut down for about 30 years. We can only imagine what we would have learned had we done this research continually. 
this is something um, I'm going to ask you to read a little extract from the book. But one of the traits that's shared by trips is ineffability, yes. which I thought was so interesting, this inability to put the experience into words. And I was wondering whether that was maybe a factor, you think, in people feeling a sort of embarrassment about psychedelics, or it's certainly um, people who don't take psychedelics, a certain cynicism about the worth of them, because yeah. it's very hard to actually describe, it is. even if it is transcendent is the word yeah you're having a profound experience but it's very hard to make it clear to anybody else and you can sound like a you know blabbering idiot as you describe what what you're experiencing Uh, i definitely had that (laughs) that that happened to me and in fact as a literary matter it was it was a tremendous challenge to figure out how to tell these trips without boring people and and making clear what had happened because it is kind of post-linguistic or pre-linguistic in, in fundamental ways. And then I had one trip, a really bad trip, on a drug called 5-MeO-DMT. It's the, the uh, smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad. <laughs> yes, somebody figured that out. Um, in which not only did I have a complete collapse of identity or person, but place the sense of space and place was obliterated and the sense of time was obliterated and how do you construct a narrative without those three ingredients right you need <laughs> yeah. you need a you need a person you need a place and you need a, a duration it was all gone it was this this storm of pure energy that seemed to defy narrative and so i struggled with that um you know i whether i figured it out or not the reader will have to judge but it turned out being one of the most interesting literary challenges of my career and in the end i actually once i figured out how to do it um completely enjoyed the process really had as much fun writing as i've ever had yeah (laughs) well i'll get you to read a little bit about one of your uh, reactions to the trips yeah so this this passage is um speaks to this ineffability issue and uh and the fact that banality and profundity sometimes are closer together than you might think (laughs) and um so I had a guided LSD experience, and it wasn't what I expected. I expected, you know, to see the the dawn of creation, and you know, these have these amazing visual. Uh, it was no, it was it was a very psychological internal journey where I, I was thinking about the people in my life, and I felt at a certain point as I as I went through my my son and my wife and my sisters and my parents, this kind of cascading dam break of love for everybody. And I said to my, my guide wrote down a couple things I said. I said, I, d- I don't want to be so stingy with my feelings. And all this time spent worrying about my heart. What about the other hearts in my life? It embarrasses me to write these words. They sound so thin, so banal. This is a failure of my language, no doubt. But perhaps it is not only that. Psychedelic experiences are notoriously hard to render in words. To try is necessarily to do violence to what has been seen and felt, which is in some fundamental way pre- or post-linguistic, or as students of mysticism say, ineffable. Emotions arrive in all their newborn nakedness, unprotected from the harsh light of scrutiny and especially the pitiless glare of irony. Platitudes that wouldn't seem out of place on a Hallmark card glow with the force of revealed truth. Love is everything. Okay, but what else did you learn? No, you must not have heard me. Love is everything. Is a platitude so deeply felt still just a platitude? No, I decided. A platitude is precisely what is left of a truth after it has been drained of all emotion. 
To resaturate that dried husk with feeling is to see it again for what it is, the loveliest and most deeply rooted of truths hidden in plain sight. A spiritual insight? Maybe so, or at least that's how it appeared to me in the middle of my journey. Psychedelics can make even the most cynical of us into fervent evangelists of the obvious. You could say the medicine makes you stupid, but after my journey through what must sound like a banal and sentimental landscape, I don't think that's it. For what, after all, is the sense of banality or the ironic perspective, if not two of the sturdier defenses the adult ego deploys to keep from being overwhelmed? By our emotions, certainly, but perhaps also by our senses, which are liable at any time to astonish us with news of the sheer wonder of the world. If we are ever to get through the day, we need to put most of what we perceive into boxes neatly labeled known, to be quickly shelved with little thought to the marvels therein, and novel, to which, understandably, we pay more attention, at least until it isn't that anymore. A psychedelic is liable to take all the boxes off the shelf, open and remove even the most familiar items, turning them over and imaginatively scrubbing them until they shine once again with the light of first sight. Is this reclassification of the familiar a waste of time? If it is, then so is a lot of art. It seems to me there is great value in such renovation, the more so as we grow older and come to think we've seen and felt it all before. LSD and psilocybin in particular are associated with great senses of unity and better appreciation of love. Um, uh, your trip on psilocybin in particular, you felt a great oneness with nature. But then there's the toad. Yes. And, and the toad is the sort of maybe the what some of us... The toad I wouldn't wish on anyone. <laughs> no. It's the one you, you regret, basically, isn't it? Well, yeah. I don't know if I regret it because it was part of my education. But it certainly wasn't fun. No. Uh, it, was, uh, it was just such an abrupt and disruptive experience where, you know, as I say, I had a, not only a, a complete obliteration of personality, but of everything. Matter was gone. It was, you know, I, I offer a couple metaphors to understand. One is like those little houses they built on the Bikini Atoll when they were testing the, the first atom bombs just to watch them blow up. And that's how I felt. I was inside <laughs> one of those houses. Or let's go back before the, um, before the Big Bang. Well, we can't, obviously, and <laughs> nobody knows what happened. But what we know about it is that there was fields of pure energy without any matter yet and any time yet. And, and that's where I felt I was. And it was a very disorienting place and a, a terrifying place. I thought I was dying. And, uh, and I had this, it was, but it was this punishing roar in my head. And, and I did feel like, there was no stillness. There was nowhere to stand. Very disorienting experience. The best thing about it was it was really short. Mm. It was over in 15 minutes. And as I came down, which was fairly rapidly, I could feel reality knit itself back together. So I could feel my legs. I was like, oh, I've got a body. How wonderful to have a body. <laughs> and then I felt the floor. And I was like, matter. There's matter. And there's time, I, I, my perception of time returned. And I had the sense, and this was the positive side of the trip, of incredible bottomless gratitude that I was still alive, yes, and we've all been grateful to be alive, I think, but I was grateful for something even more than that. I was grateful that there was anything, <laughs> that there is something rather than nothing. 
And, uh, you know, that's something we don't take time to appreciate. <laughs> but if you've experienced the loss of all that, the very categories of existence, when they come back, it feels pretty great. <laughs> I mean, that touches on something that you make. There's a passage towards the start where you say that this curious and maladaptive desire, this is about um, wanting to take Changing psychedelics. Yeah. yeah, this curious and maladaptive desire should exist alongside our desires for nourishment and beauty and sex, all of which make much more obvious evolutionary sense, cried out for explanation. Yeah. And what is your what explanation? Is explanation? <laughs> did you come to I was it didn't really have a sense that I you really sort of had did. a conclusion? Yeah, I mean... I think what's happening with psychedelics and why some people are drawn to them is that they learn things. It's part of our, our curiosity as humans. That's one part. I also think, and we now have evidence, that they're healing um, and that this disruption of the, of the status quo in the brain can release it from the kind of rigidity that gives us things like addiction and depression and obsession and and that so as they have been used for thousands of years in traditional cultures, they're often used to heal people. Mm. And now we have good evidence from places like Imperial College and Johns Hopkins and NYU that this is indeed can be the case. So that's there's that. But I also think that this this, you know, fundamental human desire to explore not just, you know, the earth, but the human mind, I mean, and that this is what literature is about, right? One of the things it's about, has led us to make real discoveries. So I think that the disruption that psychedelic experience is contributes to cultural evolution. I think that in rare cases, and it's important to emphasize that most of the insights people have on trips are not going to make a contribution to cultural evolution. The discovery that love is everything is like, it's already been discovered. But other things are discovered, and that, that new memes enter the, enter the culture, and that people have ideas and insights. And, you know, we have the testimony of scientists who've discovered things because of LSD. And there are um, the rare, there, I, I think of drugs as kind of like radiation, that they create mutation but in the cultural realm rather than the, the, the genetic realm. And that some of these mutations are incredibly useful. It could be that the religious impulse, the idea that there is a beyond, another world, a heaven and hell, that might be the product of psychedelic experience because where else would you get such a weird idea? Yeah, I wanted to actually ask you about that, but also because there is this common language that are used, and you say some of them are atheists, but lots of people that take psychedelics report seeing the face of God. Yeah, or well, I, I interviewed this one woman who was an atheist before and after her trip, and she nevertheless described it as feeling bathed by God's love. And I said, but you're an atheist. How can you say that? <laughs> and she said, well, we don't have a word big enough for what I felt. God is the biggest word we have. Mm. And so it must be that, even though I don't believe in God. It was, it's, you know, paradoxicality is also a hallmark of the mystical experience, <laughs> as William James taught us. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that, I think many spiritual insights and experiences have been underwritten by drugs. It's not certainly not the only way to have them. Um, fasting will get you there. Vision questing will get you there. Isolation, self-flagellation. There are many ways to get there. But psychedelics for thousands of years has been one of the ways that humans have communicated with other realms, imagined or real. 
And there's also this other theory, this the stoned ape theory of Terence McKenna. Basically, this idea that when humans encountered psychedelics, it, psilocybin it, specifically, it, yeah. yeah, it gave us the capacity for an interior life and an imagination and a sort of inner sense of self that we didn't yeah. have before. And, and you write that it's and language as well. And you write in the book that this is really it's not provable and it's not disapprovable. It's just a good interesting theory yeah i mean it's one of those psychedelic insights that's you know fun to play with but very hard to credit um (laughs) and here's the difference between that insight and what i was just saying about religion religion is a product of cultural history he's talking about something that is now wired into our genome whether it's uh you know language acquisition or self-consciousness or whatever so it's hard to see how the mushrooms would have exerted such a strong selective pressure to actually change us at the level of our bodies or, you know, our brain structure. But maybe, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think we can figure that one out. He saw language as a, as a special case of synesthesia. This is the kind of mixing up of senses that's very common on psychedelics. So you, you begin to see sounds or, you know, taste, um, taste them or your senses are kind of cross-wired in a really interesting way. Some people are this way normally, but Many people are this way on psychedelics. So the, the here concepts got cross-wired with sounds, meaningless sounds. Suddenly we started applying one to the other. It's an f- interesting but I think fanciful theory. Mm. And in terms of the use, uh, the practical uses, because you're saying that a lot of uh, research institutes around the world are starting to revisit that research that was done in the 1950s. Yeah. And so there was research that was done with psilocybin in terms of um, addiction. Yes, and uh, LSD. LSD as well with depression. There was also the use of it with cancer patients who were yeah. dying and terminal and helping them readjust their attitudes to both living and and dying. Yeah, that in a way is the most fascinating and moving work. And Mm. I spent a lot of time interviewing people who had cancer diagnoses. And these are people who were paralyzed by fear and depression and anxiety about their cancer on top of dealing with their cancer. And we don't really have a lot of tools to help them. Antidepressants don't really help when you're contemplating your mortality. And certainly morphine, you know, helps relieve pain, but it it clouds your mind. And so picking up on work that had been done in the 50s and 60s, they did these two trials, one in New York at NYU and another in uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, giving psilocybin a high-dose experience to people with cancer diagnoses. And I interviewed a great many of them, and they had the most remarkable stories. Many of them went into their body and visited their cancer and kind of came to terms with it. Uh, One woman I interviewed her name was Dinah Baser. Uh, she was 60-ish. She had not had experience with psychedelics. She was a figure skating instructor. And she had been treated for ovarian cancer and was terrified of a recurrence. She, she was okay. She was in remission. And she went into her body and confronted this black mass under her rib cage. And she knew it wasn't her cancer because it was in the wrong place. And she realized what it was. It was her fear. And she screamed out. And imagine her guides who don't know what's going on inside her head when this this sort of small, slightly timid woman screams mm-hmm. out, get the fuck out of my body <laughs> to this black mass. And it evaporates. Wow. And her fear went away at that very moment. And it didn't return. And I wrote about this in The New Yorker. And, uh, and I said in the Weasley words way of journalists, you know, and her fear was substantially diminished, thinking whatever she told the fact checkers, that would wash. And when the fact checkers read that to her, she said, no, that's completely wrong. He got it wrong. My fear was eliminated, which is astonishing. Mm -hmm. And she said to me when I interviewed her that she realized then that 
she could not control her cancer. It was either going to come back or not, but she could control her fear. She had sovereignty over the fear. She didn't have it over the cancer. Mm. And that distinction changed everything for her. And those are the kind of insights people have. Now, you might have been able to tell someone that. A good therapist could have perhaps used that line. But there's a very interesting quality of psychedelic experience. It's called the noetic sense. William James gave it that, that name. He was referring to mystical experience. It's the sense that whatever you've perceived, whatever insights you have, are not just subjective opinions. They have the force of revealed truth. They have a sturdiness, a concreteness that's really remarkable. And people carry them into their lives and can actually apply them. This was true even, you know, there's another very interesting study to see if you can use psilocybin to, to get off cigarettes. And I would ask people about why was a single psilocybin experience enough to let you give up a lifelong habit that you tried to stop many, many times? Smoking is one of the hardest addictions to, to break. And I remember this woman who's also about 60. She was Irish, Alice O'Donnell. And she said, well, on my experience, I, um, it put smoking in a whole new context, she said. I, uh, I grew wings, and I flew through European history, and I saw Shakespeare, and I saw the you know, Battle of whatever, and, and uh, it was the most amazing thing. And then I died three times, and I saw my body, my smoke rise from my body on, on some funeral pyre on the Ganges, and I saw the, the dawn of creation, and, and I realized the, the universe is so amazing, and there's so many amazing things to do and see that killing yourself with smoking seemed like a really stupid idea. This was her insight. And now, I'm sure she's, this has occurred to her before, that smoking is stupid. Anyone who smokes, it's occurred to them. But it had this authority for her that allowed her to stop. And if people were listening, and perhaps, I mean, depending on where they are in the world, most parts of the world, it's going to be illegal for them to mm -hmm. seek out psychedelics. But, I mean, you showed in this book that it is possible to seek them out. What would your advice be if someone was absolutely 100% determined that they wanted to try a psychedelic yeah. drug? There are ways to do it safely. What would be the sort of the things they well, absolutely have to keep in mind? Yeah, so they are illegal, and that's important. It's important people realize that. So there's a risk in taking them. There is a huge benefit in taking them with a guide, and especially for the first time, especially as an adult. I mean, we, we, you know, in general, like adults are different than teenagers. Teenagers really don't think about risk very clearly. You know, but you're an adult, like you're at home, someone's going to knock on the door, the mailman's going to show up, the phone's going to ring, you have obligations. So to be in a situation where you can remove yourself from the normal context of your life and be with a guide in their space is, you know, to me, an ideal way to do it. There is a community of underground guides. There is one in the United States. My guess is there's one in the UK and Australia and um you know, I can't recommend people. That would be foolhardy for everyone involved. But there are psychedelic societies now in 100 cities all over the world. And that's a good place to start and meet people who are interested in psychedelics who may know guides, um, may be guides. That's one thing. I, I've, I've posted a lot of resources on my website. It's, it's not a, you know, it's not to help people get high. I mean, right. but, but to learn about this world and the community and how you might gradually find your way in. People have, you know, perfectly successful experiences on their own. There's a wonderful book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by James Fadiman. He's an American psychologist, um, which has very good advice for guiding your friends or, um, you know, just it has everything that a guide would give you in terms of preparation. Uh, so that's very useful. But I have to caution people. It's not for everybody. 
sometimes people have excruciating trips where they feel like they are going crazy and it's never going to end. Usually these are just panic attacks, but if you're someone at risk for serious mental illness, you have it in your family, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't mess around. There's too much at stake. So I don't you know, I don't recommend people do it. You can have a wonderful vicarious experience reading about it in the book. <laughs> um, but for some reason, people read this and they, they want more than that. I, I don't understand. <laughs> it is a weird thing to come out of this book and be well, slightly tempted to want to do it. Well, it, you know, and I read books about mountain climbing all the time, and I never even think about climbing a mountain. Um, <laughs> so whatever happened to vicarious experience? I never want to climb a mountain. <laughs> I might want to do LSD now. <laughs> well, a lot of people seem to be having that reaction, and, uh, you know, I just have to urge that they that they appreciate that it's a momentous thing to do. Yes. And uh, you know, momentous things can be wonderful and they can be scary. And so just appreciate with the kind of respect and caution that it that it deserves and don't forget that it is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. It's very good to be here. <laughs> How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is published by Alan Lane. Next week, we'll be exploring the blurred lines between fact and fiction. Why does it seem like so many authors are turning to their own lives to write novels? Do we not know how to make anything up anymore? We'll be talking about this with the journalist Christina Patterson and with art critic Olivia Lang, whose first novel, Crudo, is set around the very real life of punk poet Kathy Acker. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.